the session this afternoon is rooted in my PhD study that I just finished last year. And my study, from the very beginning, I wanted it to be able to help the local church. I grew up at this church, been here for 28 years, and I always had this desire that if I were to do further academic studies beyond the MDiv, it would hopefully help the local church practically. And so the, the session this afternoon is the fruit of my PhD study. And what I want to do is go through the Gospel of John. We'll be, taught, we'll be going all over the place. So if you have your Bible, be ready to flip. I'll put some scriptures on the screen so you don't have to flip too much, but there'll be some flipping going on. So please, going to be ready with your fingers for that. And we can, you, you can open right to John chapter 1 as we begin this afternoon. The title of this session is Follow Me, Understanding Discipleship from the Gospel of John. So the entire study is rooted just in the Gospel of John. If you were to study early church history, at the turn of the second century, Christianity was becoming more and more prominent and at the same time becoming more and more persecuted. Around that time, we meet a man by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was martyred in the year 108 AD. Now, unfortunately, we don't have that many details about his life except for the letters, the seven letters that he left behind. He wrote those letters as he traveled from Antioch to Rome to his death. It was a journey of about 1,900 miles. And in those letters, you meet a man who is agonizing over his impending death. He's questioning himself whether he has what it takes to be faithful to Christ, knowing the torture and the death that awaits him. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch in the early 100s. Now, you know of Antioch from the book of Acts. Antioch was a central city in early Christian history. If you remember, the first followers of Christ were called Christians for the first time in the city of Antioch. You can imagine the kind of public testimony they had to be called by their uh, recruits, you could say, by the opposition as Christians. Antioch also was the church that sent its first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, if you recall that in Acts chapter 13. So for Ignatius to be a pastor of this church, that was no small responsibility. It was a prominent church, a popular church in early Christianity. But Ignatius was faithful. His nickname was the God-bearer. So you can imagine him being faithful in his evangelistic efforts, in preaching of Christ, and in proclaiming and following Jesus Christ. And he bore that name, the God-bearer, until the year 108 when he was martyred. And one of the letters that he wrote to the church in Rome says the following, gives us an insight into this internal struggle about being faithful to Christ. Through the abuse of the 10 soldiers on the road to Rome, I am learning to become more and more of a disciple, but still need the wild beasts awaiting me in the arena. I know that this is best for me. I am beginning to be a true disciple. May nothing at all, whether of this world or the invisible world above, fight against me and prevent me from reaching Jesus Christ. Bring on the fire and the cross, the hordes of wild beasts, let the cutting and dissections begin, the wrenching of my bones, the dicing of my limbs, the grinding of my entire body, the hideous tortures of the devil. Let all this befall me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Nothing from one end of the earth to the other end matters to me anymore. The kingdoms of this age are meaningless. I would rather die for Jesus Christ than to rule the entire world. He alone is the one I seek, the one who died for us, he is my desire and the one who rose again for our sake. Uh, these were his final words. Some of his final words in the letters that we have access to. Shortly after, as he arrived in Rome, he was torn to pieces by lions. What sustained Ignatius in this journey? Specifically in the journey of following Christ and being faithful to Christ while facing this kind of hostility. Well, in another letter that he wrote to his friend, he said this, encouraging his own friend to be faithful. Be sober as God's athlete. The prize is in corruption and life eternal. Now, the question is, where did Ignatius pick up this idea of eternal life? Well, from none other than his personal disciple, John. You see, John personally mentored Ignatius of Antioch. 
he invested into him this idea of eternal life. And if you're familiar with the gospel of John, which I believe if you're a preacher, you are. Most likely you have preached at least one message from that gospel. Just listen to a couple passages that reflect eternal life. There are 53 mentions of eternal life. Contrast that with only 16 in the synoptic gospels. There's clearly an emphasis in John on eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 10, 27, 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is just three passages speaking of eternal life. There are 53 mentions in total. You see, no other gospel features eternal life to the same extent. And we see that Ignatius picked up this idea as he was trying to be faithful, to be motivated to be faithful to Christ. He picked it up from this study. And John wrote this gospel in a context of hostility. One of the things I want to convey to you is that the gospel of John was rooted in a historical context of conflict, opposition, persecution. Every single chapter in the gospel of John has indications of hostility, opposition to Christ or to his disciples. Take a look. 1.11, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. 5.16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, seeking all the more to kill him. 8.59, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. 9.28, this is the blind man, you are his disciple, we are the disciples of Moses, as they revile him and ultimately put him out of the synagogue in verse 34. 11.53, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council. They planned to kill Jesus. 12.10, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Chapter 15, this is Jesus telling his disciples, the world will hate you. It hated me, it will hate you. And then 16.2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. I personally think that's a prophecy of Paul's future activity where he thinks he's worshiping God, but by killing Christians. What resulted from this hostility that is present in every single chapter is this fear that dominates the gospel of John. There are a few passages that indicate that in chapter 7. No one was speaking publicly of him or openly of him for the fear of the Jews. The people were only willing to whisper for fear of the consequences of following Christ. 9.22, the parents of the blind man refused to answer questions because they feared the Jews. 12.42, the rulers believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees were not confessing him. 19.38, Joseph Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, a secret one for the fear of the Jews. And finally, in chapter 20, after the resurrection, the disciples closed themselves, locked themselves inside a room for fear of the Jews. You see, this dominates the entire gospel, this fear, this reaction to the hostility and the opposition to being a faithful follower of Christ or by even associating with Christ. Well, you can read the book of Acts and you'll get the same sense. That was early Christianity. When the disciples began to preach Christ in chapter 4, every single chapter has elements of persecution from chapter 4 through chapter 28 in the book of Acts, except for two chapters. Chapter 10, a private meeting between Peter and Cornelius. And chapter 15, a secret meeting of all the apostles. Every other chapter has conflict, opposition, persecution of Christ. John himself was one of the first ones to be arrested in chapter 4, if you recall that in Acts. And he was exiled in Revelation chapter 1. So he experienced the same thing that the people to whom he's writing to we're experiencing. Think about his brother, James, becoming the first martyr in Acts chapter 4, uh, 12 rather. 20 years later, after James is beheaded, you have Paul being beheaded by Nero, caught up in that persecution in Rome uh, where Nero was burning Christians alive at his nightly parties. You have Peter, John's best friend, also being persecuted and killed on a cross upside down. You see, that was the context of first Christianity, early Christianity, that was the context of the gospel of John. If anybody understood what it means to follow Christ, it was John. He's writing this gospel about the year 95. He's been following Christ for nearly seven decades. 
He has seen his best friends, his ministry partners executed for Christ, and he's had his own share of persecution as well. So he understands that to be a faithful follower is to suffer for Christ, is to suffer for Jesus Christ. But why would this fear dominate the context of the Gospel of John? Well, it's because of what we alluded to or read briefly in chapter 9, chapter 12. You see, the Pharisees and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the category of the Jewish leaders, determined that the best way to suppress the witness for Christ is to expel people from the synagogue. Life in ancient Israel revolved around the synagogue. So if you were to be cast out, you became a social leper. You didn't have access to the weddings, to the court system, to the educational system. All your friends belonged to the synagogue. It's kind of like being a part of the Catholic Church. That's one of the difficulties of exiting the Catholic Church, especially in Italy, is that you become a social outcast. You lose all your family connections. You lose all your friendships. That was the idea back in ancient Israel. So people feared being expelled from the synagogue. And yet, Jesus says, that's exactly what you need to be willing to do if you were to follow me. Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 25, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your life if you are to keep it for life eternal. In chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. So on one hand, you have persecution, opposition. On the other hand, you have Jesus with a high demand. Hate yourself, eat me, drink me if you are truly my disciple. And what's the result of that in chapter 6? Well, in verse 60, it says this, after Jesus' call to eat and drink him. Many of his disciples, verse 60 of John 6, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, who can hear it? And then verse 66, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any longer. People refused to accept the challenge. And so Jesus in this moment turns to the 12 in verse 67 and says, do you not also wish to go away? You can kind of imagine Jesus in this moment of despair. Masses are leaving him. There's emotion ingrained in this statement, in this question. And his closest followers, he asks them, do you also want to abandon me? Now, he knows one will betray him, Judas. That's a reference in verses 70 and 71. But he also knows that Peter will also betray him. So that's not an empty question. Jesus understands that that will happen. Some will ultimately turn their back on him, his own closest disciples. And yet it's in exactly this context of conflict, opposition, a high cost, a high demand that he sets out. He says, follow me. That's the challenge, that's the command, that's the charge. It's repeated 17 times throughout the gospel. And it begins with, the, the gospel begins with this command. If you were to look at chapter 1, in verse 43, Jesus says to Philip, follow me. If you flip all the way to the end of the gospel, chapter 21. In verse 19, Jesus speaks to Peter here after he restores him. And he says at the end of verse 19, follow me. Some of you have studied Hebrew poetry. That's a sign when you have something opening and closing a letter, that's central to that letter. You see, that's a dominant theme to follow Christ. And then when it repeats an additional 15 times in the gospel, you know that you've identified a central key that you have to highlight as you preach this gospel. But back in chapter 21, when Jesus tells Peter, follow me, Peter sees John following as well. Remember that? And what does Peter say? What about that guy? Why is he following? Why is he tagging along? Well, you can imagine Peter thinking, look, you reclined in the bosom at the final supper. Give me some personal time with Jesus. Leave us alone. And what does Jesus say back? Don't worry about him. I told you to follow me. How often do we 
become more concerned about other people being more faithful to Christ than we are? How often does it happen in our churches where people are more concerned to be more policing the following of Christ than they are about their own purity? I think that's what's happening here is that Jesus says, I'm telling you, you personally, you as my personal disciple, you follow me. And as you look at the gospel, you realize that that entails certain requirements. And so I want to highlight seven for you as we keep moving through this theme. One is believe in Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to believe in Jesus. Belief is mentioned 98 times, always a verb. Contrast that with seven times in all of the synoptics combined. Belief is a central theme also in this gospel. And it's a verb accenting. It's not just intellectual belief. It's not just cognitive. We are talking about active obedience to Christ if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Just a couple samples of what do we believe. We believe in his name, chapter 1, verse 12. You believe in him as a Messiah, chapter 3, verse 15. You believe in him as son of God, as savior, as the one who is sent by God, as the son of man, as the one who's holy, as the one who is the I am, the light, the one who is the resurrection and the life. You also believe, believe rather, in God's testimony of Jesus, just chapter 5. Scriptures speak of me, Jesus says. And so you believe the testimony that Scripture has attesting to Jesus as the Messiah. You also believe in Jesus as being sent by God. In chapter 17, the, highly, the high priestly prayer, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, Now they have come to know, referring to his disciples, that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I have come from you, and they believed that you sent me. You see, a mark of a true disciple is to believe that God is the one who sent Jesus. We'll unpack that a little bit later, what that really means in this gospel. But that is something that we have to tell our people when you evangelize or whether you're trying to assure them of their walk with Christ is that you do believe that God is ultimately the agent who sent Jesus Christ to this earth. So you believe in Jesus, and belief ultimately leads to affection. And so the second characteristic of following Christ is love. You think back to John 21 again. When Jesus restores Peter, he doesn't ask him, hey, have you confessed your sin of betrayal to John? He doesn't ask him, have you spent some time alone in the wilderness contemplating the sin? No, he asks him one question. What was it, man? Do you love me? three times. That's ultimately what it's about. Do you love me? And when Peter says, yes, yes, you know all things, you know that I love you, the next statement from Jesus is, follow me. There's that link between following and loving Jesus Christ. And that leads to obedience. We see that in chapter 14, verse 15, 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a simple link. Verse 21 says the same thing. Verse 23, verse 24 of chapter 14 say the same thing. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love each other, 1335. So that love extends horizontally as well, not just vertically. And then you get to chapter 15 as Jesus speaks to his disciples in the context of calling them friends. And he says in verse 12, love each other. Verse 17, love each other. But in verse 16, bear fruit. So now you have a connection between loving and bearing fruit. And that's the next characteristic. So you have belief, love, obedience, bearing fruit. You will bear fruit. Lots of debate happens in that context in commentaries. What kind of fruit? Are we just talking about love because that's the immediate context? Are we talking about something different? Fruit, the term itself, is used in multiple contexts in the gospel with multiple implications. Therefore, I'd say fruit has a general idea bearing all types of fruit for Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit, in other words, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So it's a general call to you are bearing fruit. How important is that to authentic discipleship? Chapter 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. There's only a few statements that have that kind of terminology, prove, 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 attest, confirm that you're my disciple. That's one of them. That fruit bearing is critical to true discipleship. One of those fruits is being a witness. 
You see, John uses that term 48 times to be a witness for Christ, to testify about Christ. And we saw already in chapter 12 where the leaders refused to do that because they feared the leadership. In chapter 5, they refused to believe in, believe in Jesus because they preferred the glory of man over the glory of God. So you have this fear of, that men refuse to witness for Christ because of their position or perhaps even death. But John says you are to be a witness for Christ. In chapter 4, this is one of the early mentions in the gospel of being a witness for Christ. That's towards the end of the story of the Samaritan woman. And once she leaves, Jesus turns to his disciples and says this in verse 36, 436. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another one reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This is one of the early mentions of Jesus commanding his disciples, look, you have to be my witnesses. I'm sending you to be my witnesses and bear fruit in that regard. So we are to be witnesses for Christ. In chapter 15, verse 27, Jesus says to his disciples, you'll be my witnesses because you've been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 17, there's a transfer from Jesus being a witness for God to us being witnesses and carrying on that responsibility. Verse 18 of chapter 17, Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And Jesus repeats that after the resurrection, chapter 20, verse 21, the same exact statement. Remember, they're locked up in the room, they're afraid, and Jesus says, you are to go into the world. Just as I was sent, I am sending you. You will be a faithful witness if you fulfill what Jesus expects in chapter 12. And that is to hate your life. 1225, which is our sixth characteristic. You are to hate your life. 1225, Jesus says this. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you have an expectation that you are to hate your life, your success, your physical life in this world, if you are to earn eternal life. Let me rephrase that. If you are to be rewarded with eternal life. Make sure that gets edited before I get fired. The context of this whole passage is Jesus is going to the cross. He realizes that in verses 23 and 24. And so he's looking at himself, his own upcoming sacrifice, and says, my life will end, but it will bear much fruit. You are to view yourself in the same way. If your life is to bear fruit, you are to hate your life in this world. But there are benefits that come from that hatred. And we saw them in verse 26. You get eternal life in verse 25, but then you will be honored by the Father. You will be with me in the future, verse 26. So we hate our life and we follow Christ, verse 26. And finally, we abide with Christ. We abide with Christ. We abide in Christ. In chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, you are to abide in my word. In 15.10, it says, you, abide, you are to abide in my love. And in chapter 6, verse 56, he says, you are to abide in me. And so you have this expectation that Jesus and the disciple are in this abiding relationship. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Chapter 15 is the most extensive explanation of that, the vine and the branches metaphor. And all that means is that you're attached to Christ. His life flows through you. You're attached to Christ as a branch is attached to the vine. And he sustains us. He empowers us. You see, discipleship in the ancient world meant attachment, personal commitment, affection. And John uses this term 78 times, disciple. 78 times in the gospel, you'll stumble over this term. To be, a pers to be personally attached to Christ, to have your allegiance to Christ. 
Now, John, as he conveys this charge to us, this challenge from Jesus, follow me, follow me at the beginning and at the end, and then multiple times in the middle. He isn't calling us into anything that he himself isn't committed to. You see, John was a model follower of Christ. That's how he's presented in this gospel. Three years personally following Christ, eating with him, staying in the same house, going through the difficult challenges as we saw in a few of those chapters of hostility and opposition. He was with Christ, but John was a very different man before he met Christ. We know of John before, right? What was his nickname? Son of Thunder. Him and his brother. Sons of Thunder. There's a couple good stories in the synoptics of them being thunderous. You think of them in Luke 9, when they want to call fire down from heaven to burn down a Samaritan village because that village refused to welcome Jesus in. And he gets transformed such that he devotes almost an entire chapter to the conversion of the Samaritan woman. The only gospel to contain that story. He began to look at the Samaritans differently. He was the man who boastfully came to Christ in Mark chapter 9 and says, Jesus, there was a man who was speaking in your name, but he's not one of the 12, so I shut him up. Remember that, right? Boasting like the gist, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm defending you. And Jesus says, look, if they're not against us, they're for us. So he had this exclusive mindset, it's the 12. In John, he uses disciple 78 times, referring to any follower of Jesus. Any. The secret one, Joseph of Arimathea, Samaritan woman. If you're willing to follow Jesus, you are a disciple. You don't have to be one of the 12. He changed. He and his brother James come to Jesus and says, Jesus, we have this minor, really insignificant request of you. In the millennial kingdom, we want to be on your right and on your left. That's it. Now, I, I began thinking, why? I mean, that's pretty bold, right? Of all the things to ask of Jesus. Well, if you study the biography of these brothers in the other Gospels, you realize that they were the sons of Zebedee, a prominent family in ancient Israel. They were known to the high priest. That's why John was able to go inside the inner court in chapter 18. If you read about their fishing business, they had multiple servants, which implies they were successful. So they were prominent. They were wealthy. John gets exiled to Patmos. The Romans only exiled the nobility in the Roman world, which means he was perceived even by the Romans as a noble family. So you kind of begin to put all those pieces together and you realize th these were a couple stuck-up kids. <laughs> Two brothers, rich, prominent, famous, Hey, they're entitled to be on the right and on the left. It makes sense when you begin to put the pieces together pre-Christ, John. But when he is transformed by Christ, Jesus entrusts his mother to whom? He became compassionate. Not as brash. Not as exclusive. He's the only one who stands with Jesus of all the disciples at the foot of the cross. You see, he changed. Jesus Christ changed him in his journey. He was faithful. In chapter 13, he reclines, it says, on the bosom of Jesus. Well, the terminology there is exact parallel to John 1.18, where the son is in the bosom of the father. The only other place of the same terms are used. In other words, he's comparing his relationship to Jesus, the intimacy of it, and says, it's as close as the father and the son. That's how much I loved him. That's how much he loved me. So you see, there's an intimacy there that we can imitate. And again, he follows Jesus into the lion's den, into the inner court. Sure, he's known by the high priest, but he goes in and he's willing to stand by Jesus when everybody else has abandoned him, including Peter. In chapter 18, read that sometime, verses 15 down to verse 27, the betrayal of Christ. The swearing, the cursing that he brings on himself from God. God, condemn me if I'm not telling you the truth, that I don't know the man. And Peter is standing right inside, faithful to Jesus Christ. In other words, when John says, follow Christ, he gives us a model to follow, himself. 
he follows Jesus all the way to the end. And when Jesus has to tell Peter in chapter 21, okay, you love me, get up, follow me. John does it naturally. Jesus didn't have to tell him that. He kind of assumed that if Jesus is going somewhere, I'm going there as well. In Revelation, if I recall correctly, it's chapter 12. It says, these follow the lamb wherever he goes. John wrote that probably a year after he wrote the gospel. You see, that was his expectation. The true follower of Jesus follows the lamb wherever he goes. So John gives us his memoir of the life of Christ, a memoir that is very distinct. 92% of the gospel of John is different from the synoptics. The first five chapters are completely new. The first half, about 20 verses or so, of chapter 6 is similar to the synoptics, but the rest of chapter 6, um, the bread who came down from heaven, that whole uh, section is new. Chapter 7 through 11, brand new. Only the first 20 verses of chapter 12 are similar to the synoptics. The rest of chapter 12 through chapter 17 is brand new material. Chapters 18 and 19, the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion are similar, but they have a lot of new details. Chapter 20, brand new, except for the reference to resurrection. And chapter 21, brand new. 92% of John is different. Why write a gospel 30 years later than the others have already been written and make it so different that there's only an 8% overlap? Well, John answers why. Chapter 20. John is one of the few gospels that have a purpose statement which helps to answer this question. Chapter 20, verse 30. Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. You see, John explicitly says, I'm writing this gospel in order to encourage faith. Now, if you've studied that passage, you know there's a debate. An aorist versus a present tense. Is he talking evangelistically or is he talking more of persevering faith? Either verb, aorist or present, actually allows you to do the continuing persevering faith. You can get that from studying the Greek language, the aspect theory, if you're really interested in that, that'll get you there. But what you see happening here, no matter what the first original verb was, he says, so that you may believe, that's the questionable one, and then by continuing to believe, there's no debate about that being the present tense. You are continuing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that will result in eternal life. You see, understanding the context of opposition, persecution, conflict, and hostility And placing that purpose statement in that context helps us to conclude that John is writing his gospel in order to motivate Christians, perhaps those who are being barely introduced to Jesus as Messiah, the Jewish people, to continue and follow Jesus. Or you've been introduced, now believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by putting that little phrase, and by believing, continuing to believe, you will have eternal life, He tries to motivate that faith, doesn't he? And so by seeing that in the purpose statement, what I'd like to propose to you is that John wrote his gospel intentionally to motivate believers to be faithful to Christ. And he does that by deploying 26 different rewards, promises all over the gospel that are functioning as motivations to being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's a a list for you to just quickly peruse. The 26 benefits. If you're interested in that, you can email me and I'll give you passages for each of these. They're peppered throughout the entire gospel. But John places them from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 21. And they appear in context of opposition. We'll look at that in just a few minutes. But when you begin to analyze these 26 what you see happening is that three rise above the others. Three rise above to the top. And I'd like to focus on those three because the others actually are grouped around these three. 
And so they almost function as sub-benefits, you could say that. Sub-rewards, sub-promises of following Christ and being faithful to Jesus Christ. And the other detail to note is that these promises, these rewards are actually relationships. And we'll see that beginning with our first promise. You see, if you are a follower of Christ, first, the first main benefit that John presents to us is that you are adopted by the Father. And John wastes no time to get to this specific promise. In chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. So John opens his gospel with this idea, if you believe in Jesus, you will become a child of God. John closes his gospel in chapter 20, verse 19, when Jesus sees Mary, Let me back up. It's verse 17, rather. Chapter 20, verse 17. He tells her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended, ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. The first time Jesus calls his disciples brothers because the cross has happened, the divine family has been established. And tell these men, these brothers of mine, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. That is another statement of welcoming the disciples into the family of God at the beginning of the gospel and at the end. You can look at chapter 21, verse 5, where Jesus calls his disciples little children. Again, a term of familiarity. It's a familial term. But back in chapter 1, John does something interesting. He uses a Hebrew device called a chiasm to stress this promise. And this is what he does. If you look at the prologue, the first 18 verses... It is presented in a chiastic structure, and the center is always the main point. The center is verse 12. The reason the Logos became man, the reason the light came, is so that we would become children of God. That's the main point in the prologue. That's the main benefit to us as those, as verse 12 says, who would believe in his name. This is the focal point, and John stresses that initially. He says, I'm calling you to believe in the light. I'm calling you to believe in the Logos. And if you do so, you will become a child of God. Now, John opens the entire gospel and closes it with this idea of being in the family of God. But then we know that John breaks down into two sections, three sections, rather. Chapters 1 through 12, which is the public ministry of Jesus. Chapters 13 through 17, which is his private ministry with his disciples. And then chapters 18 through 21 is his passion and resurrection. So chapters 1 through 12 is the public ministry of Jesus. And the way this public ministry concludes is also with a promise of sonship, with a promise of adoption. Adoption, In verse 26, uh, 36, rather, it says this, Jesus spoke these things and went away and hid himself. That's the end of his public ministry. We see that also reaffirmed in chapter 13, verse 1, when it says, and he loved his own, making that statement distinct from the rest. The masses that listened to him, some followed, some didn't. Now he's focusing on his own. Back to 1236, Jesus says this right before he hides himself. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Another promise of being a member in the family of God. So John spotlights this promise. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. You become a child of God. That is his first way to motivate, incentivize, and stimulate faith. Is that there's a reward for being faithful. And if you place yourself in that context and you consider being persecuted and perhaps being cast out of the synagogue as the blind man was in 934, you would lose your family connection. So a promise of being a part of the family of God would actually be attractive to you. John isn't just saying, okay, if you follow Jesus, you become a member of the royal family, the imperial family. No, he goes above that. You become a member of the divine family. 
And we understand in the religious context of ancient Rome and Greece and Israel even, how important deity and divinity and all that was. How people, everybody worshiped God, gods, plural. And so John says, you are part of the divine family. And it's this benefit of being adopted. Now, back in chapter one, John says, you are born of God. You see, the the importance of being in the right family, you can't stress that enough for the ancient world. It determined your success. Your last name meant everything. Who would be subservient to you, you, how much money you would have. So you had to be born into the right family. If you weren't, there was another option to be promoted in the society, adoption. That was really the only other option. Now you have an example of this all over the place, but let me just give you one. The first emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus or Octavian was his first name. He's from the rather family of Octavian. He was a nobody until Julius Caesar adopted him. And when Julius Caesar died, if you remember Brutus, Etu Brute, when he died, Octavian inherited all of the wealth of Julius Caesar, his entire military, all of the debtors. So he went from nothing to being ultimately the most powerful man in the Roman world. That is the benefit of adoption in that society. And so when you see that you have been given the right in chapter 1, verse 12, to become a child of God, that would stimulate motivation. Yes, I'm willing to forgo membership in the synagogue because I'm in the family of God. And this membership would provide more benefits. If you begin to look at the passages in John that stress family membership, being the father, the son, children, you were headed to the father's house in chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, if you recall that. When you see all those passages with familial terminology, you realize that there are other benefits attached to it. Love, knowledge of God, knowledge of the truth, freedom from sin, walking in the light, salvation, avoidance of judgment, protection, performance of great works, confirmation of being a genuine disciple, honor, glory, unity, resurrection, and eternal life. Now, we don't have the time to go into all of them, but I'd like to focus in on eternal life because I think sometimes eternal life is misunderstood by Christians. I think sometimes we think eternal life is all about the future. I'm waiting for eternal life. That is not how John presents eternal life. Eternal life is present. It's here and now. If you were to trace the references to eternal life, the 53 that I mentioned earlier, you would see that it's, they are presented in the present tense. You have eternal life today. And John is very careful and very, very precise to distinguish between eternal life and resurrection. Let me just give you one passage. There are multiple, but let me give you just one. In chapter 6, if you were to go to chapter 6, verse, verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, present tense, eternal life. And I will, future tense, raise him up on the last day. You can go back to chapter 5, and Jesus makes the same distinction in his speech. Verse 24, he has eternal life, doesn't come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And then verse 29, when I come back, those and some will be resurrected to life, and others to judgment. There is a consistent, very careful distinction between life and resurrection. There is a relationship, certainly. That is, eternal life culminates in our resurrection. So we have eternal life today, but we're waiting for the final fulfillment of it, the final culmination of it, the zenith of that life in the future. And so John says, Eternal life is what you have here and now. So then if we have it in the present, what is it? Well, John 17, 3 defines it for us. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Eternal life is wrapped up in the knowledge of God. 
to put it very simply. And in chapter 10, verse 38, it says that you are knowing God and you will continue to know God. Knowledge of God is a progressive experience. And Jesus says eternal life is like the water of life. It's like the bread of life in chapter 6. It satiates our spiritual hunger. So eternal life is something we have now. And so the quality of that life can vary depending on your knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So it is appropriate for us to preach. You can have a better experience of eternal life today if you know God better. If you invest into growing in God's knowledge. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's because it ultimately gives you benefits today as you experience God. Experience Jesus Christ. Not in a mystical, charismatic sort of way. But you are understanding, getting to know that one with whom you will spend eternity. That's eternal life today. But all this, all these benefits, and we'll get into a couple more. That's not the point of the Gospel of John. You see, to be a member in a family where you experience birth and life and so on, is to ultimately not be focused on the son or the daughter or the benefits that come with being in a prestigious home. It is all about the father. The ancient family revolved around the father. He was the chief member. He was the most important player in the family. The Roman father or the ancient Hebrew father, ancient Jewish father as well, had control over life and death of every member, all possessions, marriage, divorce, even owning or disowning a child. You can easily, what's called exposing a child, you can read that in ancient stories, just put them up on the front steps. That's disowning a child, exposing a child, and the father had the right to do that. Christians were the first to adopt those babies and use them and train them up in the way of the Lord. Now, gladiator schools and prostitute houses also adopted them for the wrong reasons, obviously. But Christians began to adopt those children who were exposed and then raise them up in the Christian home. Everything revolved around the father. When you get into the Gospel of John, you realize God as Father is mentioned 120 times. If there's one thing to know about who is God in the Gospel of John, he's the Father. And let me just give you a couple statements. He is the author of life, chapter 5. He's the all-powerful one, chapter 10. He's the one who owns everything, chapter 17. He's the one who commands, chapter 10. He's the one who judges through the Son, chapters 5 and 8. And he's the one who seeks ultimate worship, chapter 4 and chapter 5. You see, God the Father is the main figure in the Gospel of John. The Gospel isn't about Jesus. The Gospel isn't about eternal life. The Gospel isn't about us being adopted, as I I said, that the chiastic structure. The Gospel of John is about God the Father. You can see that in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 18. The end of the prologue concludes this way. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he explained him. The Logos became man in order to explain God to man. And then you flip over to chapter 17. And Jesus in verse 4 says, I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What is that work? Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the man whom you've given me in this world. Verse 7, they know that everything is from you. In other words, Jesus came to explain God. And then as we saw earlier in chapter 17, he transfers that responsibility to us, that our responsibility as members of the family of God is to now, <clears throat> is to now excuse me, explain God to the world. That's our responsibility. Now there's much more we can talk about, but that is a key theme in this gospel as we talk about being a child of God. So as John says, if you follow Christ, even in the face of opposition, you are rewarded for that. First, you become a child of God, and that yields many other benefits. Second, you are in a royal friendship with Jesus Christ, with the Son. You become a royal friend with the Son, and that's chapter 15. And just by way of comment, these three main benefits 
are unique to John. The reason they kind of rise above the others is because they are prominent in John. They are peculiar to John and they are placed strategically in the gospel, as I said, in the beginning or in the end. John 15 is the only passage in the four gospels that feature this relationship of friendship between Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus says, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that I, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. And verse 12 and verse 17 is the same. I command you, love one another. So the love command brackets this promise of friendship. But if you noticed, friendship is not a, a friendship of parity in this passage. There's statements of commanding, sending, expecting fruit. That is not a normal friendship, right? Friendship in our world and in the ancient world was a friendship of peers. Now, they held to it even more uh, carefully than we do because in the ancient world, everybody wanted to be at the top like we have the corporate ladder as well. But if you were friends with somebody significantly below you in the social class, they would pull you down in the social structure. So you stayed friends only with those who were your social peers. That is not a kind of friendship that we read about here. He's talking about sending, commending, doing things for him. There was only one type of friendship in the ancient world where there was a friendship of an inferior with a superior. That is a royal friendship. You see, if you begin to read ancient literature, you will find that pharaohs, kings, uh, emperors had friends. They called them the friend of the emperor, the friend of the king. And this was the inner circle of a king his private circle, his in, the, the internal, his secret advisors. And with that title came major benefits. In Rome, for example, they were protected from all public insult, verbal or physical. They were completely protected by the imperial name. And we see an example of this even in the gospel, chapter 19, verse 12. When Pilate speaks to the Jews, Regarding Jesus, he wants to release him, but the Jews oppose. So in the middle of verse 12 of chapter 19, the Jews tell him, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. That's a technical phrase referring to that inner circle of Caesar. What I think is happening, when you trace the rest of the gospel, you see John presenting Jesus as a king. Beginning in chapter 1. If you recall the conversation with Nathaniel in verse 49, how does Nathaniel respond? You are the son of God, the king of Israel. That's chapter one. Chapter three, Jesus and Nicodemus talk about what? The kingdom, the kingdom of God. Chapter six, Jesus makes all the food for the masses. And they, and it says very, very carefully, they by force, intent to grab him and make him king. And he leaves. Chapter 12, he rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem and they begin to proclaim him, Hail, King of Israel. He chose the donkey strategically because in ancient Israel, you can read that in Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, the kings of Israel rode on donkeys. That was a royal symbol to ride on a donkey. It's not because there was no horse around in Jesus' day. And then you get to the passion narrative, chapters 18 and 19. There are 10 references to Jesus as a king. Three references to his kingdom. When Pilate asks Jesus, he could ask him any question. He asks him one question, the beginning question. Are you the king of the Jews? The same question is asked of Jesus by Pilate in every single gospel. And in every single gospel, Jesus says, yes. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus acknowledges that he's a king. So John presents Jesus as a king. In addition to that, when you look at back in John 15, Jesus says in verse 13, no greater love has one man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. There's only one other passage in the gospel of John where this reference is made to lay down your life. That's in chapter 10. That's in the good shepherd narrative. 
I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Remember that? You see, the ancient kings, pharaohs, emperors even saw themselves as shepherds of their people. And so what's happening that I think John is doing is he's saying, you're aware that his, his audience is aware of this understanding that the king is a shepherd. The emperor is the shepherd of his people. The pharaoh is the shepherd. You find that all over the ancient Near East. He blends those two ideas, of course, appealing to the Old Testament, taking Jesus' words at face value and bringing them into the gospel and says, Jesus is that good shepherd king. The emperor can claim all he wants to be the good shepherd king, but he will kill his own people and did so regularly. Jesus, on the other hand, lays down his life for his sheep. And so blending these images together, we find John featuring Jesus as a king and then saying, if you are my follower, you are brought into the inner circle of the friendship with a king. Jesus elevates his followers from just being his slaves. Yes, we are doing his will. Those are not in any way contradictory. But we have this position, this title, this status of being friends with Jesus. And we have to remember that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Which is why we see passages in 2 Timothy, we will reign with him. We will receive the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8. We will receive the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.4. And then Revelation 2.10, if you are faithful until death, you will receive the crown of life. So the true reward of being a friend of Jesus is still awaiting us. So John says, let me feature a few of these benefits, these rewards for you in order to stimulate faith. One is you're adopted into the family of God. Second, you are a friend of Jesus, both unique to John, not explained in the other gospels. And finally, you are in a Trinitarian abiding relationship. You see, the entire Trinity has a relationship with the follower of Jesus. And you can see that in chapter 14. In, in verse 40, 23, 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home or abode with him. Back in verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter who will be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be with you. So the spirit abides with us, 16, 17. And then the Father and the Son in verse 23 abide with us as well. Those are present tense promises. There's only one other place in the entire Bible where this word abode is used. Chapter 14, verses two and three. So the present abiding presence of the Trinity now ultimately culminates in a future presence with God. And that's what verses two and three are about. In my father's house are many, that's the word, dwelling places, many abodes, you could say. If it weren't so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. Jesus is promising to his followers permanent abiding presence with him in eternity. But here and now, if you love me, verse 23, my father and I will come and make our home with him. And the spirit will be the mediator of that relationship. When Jesus was on earth, in chapter 3, it says that the Father did not spare the Spirit on Jesus. He gave the full Spirit to Jesus to do what he did. When Jesus left, Jesus sends the Spirit, chapter 16. The Father sends the Spirit, chapter 14. So the Father and the Son send the Spirit to take that mediating presence to replace, rather, Jesus' presence with the disciples, now with the Spirit. And so we abide with the Trinity. You read in the Psalms, this desire this longing oh to see the face of god psalm 42 when will i come and see the face of god it's fulfilled right here you will spend eternity with this god so here's how i understand the gospel of john john wrote to persecuted christians in order to motivate them to be faithful to christ in that context he says look at the benefits that you receive if you're faithful to christ 
the benefits of being a member of the family of God, of being a royal friend with Jesus, and the entire Trinity abides with you. All three of these benefits are unique to John. They are substantially developed in John, and they come with additional benefits, as we saw the list earlier, that revolve around these three. Let me conclude with this. We began with Ignatius, and we end with Polycarp. You see, Polycarp was John's last disciple. Ignatius was one of them, but he was the last one. Polycarp died in the year 156 at the age of 86. Many of us know the story. But the relationship between Ignatius and Polycarp is what ultimately demonstrates that they leaned heavily on the gospel of John as they both faced persecution and death. You see, Ignatius wrote a letter to Polycarp, and he said this, Be sober as God's athlete, the prize is eternal life. He picked it up from John. And that's encouraged them and motivated them to be faithful even to the, in the face of death. Poly, uh, Polycarp was burned at the stake. Ignatius was torn by lions. Both men relying on these rewards for being faithful to Jesus Christ. I think it's appropriate for us to motivate people in our churches who are struggling and tem are tempted by the world. Look at chapter six, that was going on there. They were unwilling to follow Jesus because the cost and the demand was too high. That happens all the time. I'm in youth ministry here at the church and constantly have to remind people, do not be tempted by the world. I think the gospel of John can encourage us and as we encourage other people in our churches to say, there are rewards for being faithful to Jesus. Feature them, highlight them for the people that God has entrusted to your care. Thank you, man.